You're listening to Death of the Reader, Flex and Herds here for your Murder Mystery World Tour. We are back with another novel, a classic, as we make our return to the shores of England to the Detection Club. And we are joined once again by Brad Freeman of Our Sweet Mystery. Brad, it's so good to have you back. It is so good to be back, Flex and Herds. We are kicking off with John Dixon Carr's A Crooked Hinge, chapters one to six, The Death of a Man. And Brad, you've uh, you've challenged us to solve this novel. This is one of your mm. favorite novels of all time, you tell me. Tell us a little bit about what won you over. Why do you love it? Why do you love it? John Dixon Carr was the third great mystery writer I found after Agatha Christie and Ellery Queen. Um, I started reading his books probably when I was about 12. And The Crooked Hinge, probably around 14 or 15, is maybe my sixth or seventh book. I, cho- I don't remember. And I just remember really liking... John Dixon Carr, until I got to the Crooked Hinge and then loving him. And mm. then I forgot about it. This, this, your program is my chance to revisit <laughs> a favorite. I had to reread this and I was terrified it would not be my favorite anymore. Yeah. But it is. I mean, that's a real fear. That's a real fear, right? Like I, I've definitely talked before about how for a lot of people, you know, their favorite murder mystery is the first book they read, the first murder mystery that that, that they read when they, you know, they needed to read that murder mystery and start thinking differently or whatever. Um, but I'm glad to hear this one is held up because sometimes they don't. Sometimes. sometimes you read them back and they're a pile of trash. People often ask me what I have on my bookshelves at home. And I have to confess that nearly everything is young adult fiction I read as a child that I've kept <laughs> because one day I want to read it. But I'm always too scared that they're going to be bad. Yeah. <laughs> the young adult actually, I think, holds up better than some of these old mysteries. Oh, the, really? Yeah. The first Ellery Queen I read was The Greek Coffin Mystery, which is a great book. But when I reread it mm. a couple of years ago, I forgot how dull it could be, too. So uh, but this one, I don't know how you guys are feeling yet. This one really moves. This one's very interesting, exciting and a little bit different for Carr in terms of the type of murder and all that. I really love this book. Well, we're just coming off the back of our Indian tour. And one thing that was a, a common thread to the Indian tour through authors like Avi Rahman and Sajada Massey, Vasim Khan, is that they all felt like they were having so much fun writing those stories. And that's something that I didn't always get with Golden Age writers, but I definitely get with Carr. Mm. There's like fantastic, beautiful turns of phrase, like when they refer to the butler as seeming more like a tennis ball that had been hit to the far corners of the court and was just kind of getting sick of it. Well, you know, Carr loved to write. Yeah. He wrote so much. He wrote to the point of exhaustion and he wrote to the point where his publisher said, we can't publish so many of your books. (laughs) So that's when he split off into another name, Carter Dixon. And the Carter Dixon books have a different heavy set old detective who's very funny and just as wonderful as Gideon Fell and his books, the, 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 the Sir Henry Merivale books are wonderful too. But this man could write three, four, five books a year. Mm. That's how much he loved to write. And you do feel that when you read his books. I think you also see he loves to read as well because there's so many references mm-hmm. to other murder mystery tropes and archetypes. There's like a short passage in Herds and My Edition of the book oh here where he says, now you remember when this was posted in the newspaper, a bunch of you said this, you're all idiots. The amateur detectives. <laughs> yeah, you, you get the sense that he really loves talking about murder mysteries, really like engage with people who who are who are stupid who or who you know approaching mystery the way that he thinks is improper i mean i don't know how much we want to get into this but uh, in the introduction in the foreword it mentions the the locked room lecture 
which I believe was in in the Hollow Man, where yes. where Carr talks about. It's basically a list of all the different types of murders that are valid, but there are problems with them. Uh, you know, all the different ways that you can you can uncork uh, a locked room. Well, and the most extraordinary thing about that lecture, the mm. lecture's fun. But what's extraordinary is that Dr. Fell stops the story and says, yes. we all know we're in a novel, right? Yes, we all know yes. we're <laughs> characters. So let's just kick back, relax, and talk about this for a minute. Uh, mm. And that's one of the things I love about Carr. He's probably the most metafictional detective story writer of them all. And he's constantly doing that. His footnotes do that all the time. There's mm. one early on in this one where he's basically saying, whatever this suspect says is fine. He's You, should, you yes. can trust him. And I'm mm. just Murray, saying, yeah. Always be careful of his when he makes those kinds of blanket statements. You've got to be careful because he's a very tricky man. With Murray specifically, it says we know that the evidence that he produced was key to solving the murder case, but it doesn't say is he trustworthy himself? Does the evidence come forward by his own admission of the evidence? Is there something more complicated going on there? It's great. So many other holes he's trying to distract you away Mm -hmm. from. But I suppose that's a good transition into just doing a quick summary of what's (laughs) happened here because essentially. We've followed through the eyes of one Mr. Page mm-hmm. uh, the the claim that a Sir John Farnley, who sailed as a young boy in the Titanic, of course he did, was actually replaced by another passenger on the Titanic. And some twenty five years later, uh, the original Sir John Farnley has come back to claim his heritage, or so he says. Exactly. And we get into a legal dispute, you know, with lawyers and debates in the house on the uh, Farnley estate. And the wife is Only there. Only to end yeah. up with the defendant, Sir John Farnley, dead, and the fingerprint evidence that was meant to seal the deal missing. That's right. Basically, you've just covered the first six chapters. It's nice. Look, it's succinct. It's astonishingly brief. I kind of love- It's good. Uh, as, as we were saying, how much legwork there is in what actually happens here. We cover this entire arc with the Titanic in like a really brief stretch, but also managed to cram a lot of detail in there. I was saying to Herds through the week that one thing that I found really odd about the Titanic story is that every Titanic tale I have read- or seen has always been this game of someone taking a new identity for themselves, whether that's James Cameron or the animated films, the North Korean octopus version of the story, (laughs) or John Dixon cars, the crooked hinge. It's always that thread of someone, you know, being someone new after the Titanic disaster. I do not know the North Korean octopus version, but (laughs) it sounds very silly. I think a very common trope in classic detective fiction was the sinking of a ship. Uh, The second Agatha Mm. Christie, the secret adversary has to do with uh, a girl disappearing on the Lusitania. So that's something that was very common. And when that person came back, were they actually the person or were they a fake? I feel like it's definitely leading on that trope in 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 all all fiction ever of of like being cleansed by the sea, like the sea changes you. If you go and live out on the sea for a couple of years, you come back a changed man, that sort of thing. Um, and obviously being like washed mm-hmm. by the ocean. Have a volleyball for a best friend. Yeah, exactly. You, you turn into a tennis ball, of course, and become an old butler. <laughs> no, but this, um, that is an important factor in this first six chapters because oh, sure. when we talk about John Farnley, he was a bad boy. Mm-hmm. The reason he's off to America, great. he mm-hmm. was a Satanist. He had, at the age of 15, gotten a barmaid pregnant. He was, um, he was, he had been thrown out of Eton, which is the worst. So, you know, his father was mm-hmm. done with him. Old Sir Dudley was done with him. And he sends him off with Murray 
to uh, a cousin to become a farmer. And he does sink in the Titanic and does exactly what you just said, Herds. He's cleansed. He -hmm. goes to America. He becomes an industrious young farmer. The cousin is very pleased with his work. He basically separates himself from his family and leads a good life until his father and his older brother, who should be the inheritor, dies. Um, And then he comes back and is leading an exemplary life, marrying his childhood sweetheart, Lady Molly, and, um, and being a good man. And that is not the man who went away, the boy who went away. So Mm. was he cleansed by that experience or is it a different person? This is something I think Carr does so well. You don't know whether he's so changed because he's not the same person or because he just went through a terribly traumatic experience and grew up. And that's obviously what the claimant's uh, position, Patrick Gore, he goes by, uh, is, is so interesting for is because he still is foul mouthed. He still loves to stand up and he's, he tells his lawyer to shut up several times for the story. He's like, I want to debate this. This is my life, not yours. It's like, well, why'd you even bring the guy then? He leers yeah. at Lady Molly. She, she, she's disgusted yeah. by the way he looks her up and down. It's like, I remember you, baby. And so he seems to be the boy returned. And yeah. is that because he is or is that because he He's, rec- he, he's studied that boy, that character. Yeah, well, I think in, in terms of the characterization of the, the two Johns, right, like the way that I read it the first time I kind of went through, it feels like we're supposed to empathize with uh, the defendant, I guess we'll, we'll call the defendant John, um, because the claimant is very aggressive. He's very like, aha, but did you know the names of the two rabbits from 25 years ago? <laughs> can, I t- can I tell you, Brad? Can I, like, yeah. When when they when they bring up the rabbits, uh, he's like, the, there were the two rabbits. Do you remember their names? And the defendant says, oh, it was Billy. And, and I said, it's going to be silly, isn't it? And I turned the page and it says silly. And I was like, oh, Don Dixon yeah. Carr, how could you? Yeah, no, I, I, I absolutely love that levity. And, and the way that we are betraying the claimant as like a despicable human being that we wouldn't really want to side with. Even if he does turn out to be the real, the real John Farley, do we want him to be? Which I think is a really, a really cool question. And I just want to point out to both of you who are trying to solve this mystery that yeah. neither one of them acts in a way that would suggest they don't want to find out the truth. They both do. They both mm-hmm. seem eager. They both know some things and don't know some others. They both pass some question, test questions and, and fail other test questions. And they both seem eager for Kenneth Murray's fingerprint test to go forward. So that's hmm. a strange kind of thing. You're not seeing anything between the two of them that would suggest, oh, that one seems more likely to be reacting like. A- I, uh, I actually want to disagree with you here. <laughs> oh, no. Because one of the John Farnleys, if it is the two boys from the Titanic, mentions that they were always at each other's throats and that one tried to kill the other. The claimant tries to claim that the defendant John Farnley went to kill him. And I think that there's a solid thread of vengeance in here mm. if that story does end up being true. I don't think it's a matter of knowing the truth. I think it might be a matter of embarrassing and perhaps killing the defendant if that uh, does end up being the case. So I don't think that it's entirely a search for the truth so much as that the truth is a guise for another motive. Okay. That's an interesting theory. Thanks, Brad. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> um, to to kind of jump on that before Brad gets uh, too too far into the spotlight here, folds under uh, pressure. <laughs> let's let's say um, b- 
because obviously we're we're looking at these two characters and you're saying, you know, they both want the truth to be unveiled. Well, I kind of get the feeling that Molly is kind of a vessel for common sense. Oh, yes. She says, uh, my dear sweet husband, why even entertain the idea that you might not be the real John Farley? That's ridiculous. Why not simply have this man thrown out? I'm curious why, you know, whether he is or isn't the real John Farley, why would he even allow these tests to continue? Why not use his current power to to end the situation entirely? Yeah. Uh, I do think it's a very interesting question. It, it's also fascinating to me because Molly as a character, like you, I feel like I can trust her yeah. because the only she way that she could side- True. The only way that she could side with the claimant is if John Dixon wrote a character that was like, oh goodness, I married the wrong John Farnley, but I loved that <laughs> young boy so much 25 years ago. And that seems so far-fetched that it, it can't happen, right? Well, it's a little far-fetched since she was seven. Yeah. I'm just saying. In terms of endings to this novel, which we're only in the first week, we're, we're a ways away, but- I, I think I went, leading up to the actual murder when the defendant is killed, I was in my head thinking, I feel like it's got to be one of the the Farleys who is killed because that makes the most dramatic sense. And obviously, we'll, we'll talk about more about this in the in the murder mystery section. But it's kind of set up. Maybe it's Murray who's going to get killed because he's the one with the evidence. But obviously, it's a switcheroo because. Yeah. You shouldn't be watching where the magician is telling you to watch. That's the like lesson that he's exactly. telling you. But I was thinking about which of the files would be kind of more interesting to um, to murder. And the the thing is, is, now that the defendant has been killed, how does how does this story pan out in a way that is satisfying and in which the characters kind of have a happy ending? Because Molly certainly can't get a happy ending. Nathaniel Burrows, he's played things so that he can be on either side of the fallout, no matter what happens. So he's okay. You know, Ooh. which is certainly interesting. Uh, Wilkins is just in it for the money, as far as I can tell. No, he's in it for the food. Oh, for the food, of course. You know what? <laughs> but food can be bought it with could. with money. Yes. So the you know, he wants the buffet. He eats the entire money buffet. Money can buy many. Yeah, His many alibi peanuts. is eating the sandwiches. So. <laughs> mm-hmm. That makes sense. Which that makes is sense. fantastic. What a great, what a great. But piece. yeah, I don't know. It's it's interesting to me because I I like to come at these mysteries from a sort of a character perspective, and Molly, despite kind of being portrayed so far as like a good character, um, very pure and true. I don't know if she can get a good ending out of this. I don't know if she can like have a, a happy life afterwards, but I guess we'll find out, you know? You will. You will find out. <laughs> good. Good. Thanks, Brad. <laughs> we, uh, we're going to wrap this part of the discussion here. We'll be back in just a bit with more of John Dixon Carr's The Crooked Hinge. We're joined today by Brad Freeman of Our Sweet Mystery, and we'll, of course, have links up on the podcast to his work if you want to check out more of that. You're listening to Death of the Reader. Stick around. You're listening to Death of the Reader, Flex and Herds, and Brad Freeman from Our Sweet Mystery here, speaking about John Dixon Carr's The Crooked Hinge, chapters one to six. Herds and I are in the hot seat. Brad, before we get into things, do we need to remind you of the rules of the game? Please do. When we have a guest on in this format, where it's Herds and I versus uh, the law, let's call you, the, <laughs> uh, the away team, the red shirts, you are playing Brad for four points this year. It's a quadruple or nothing game. It's a lot of points. Good luck. And the way that this works is that at the end, after we've submitted two weeks of theories, there is one point for us proposing different theories each week for providing a bit of variety. And then the other three points you can claim for any technicality that we have failed to catch. The only limit 
to how petty you can be is how guilty you feel about being that petty. All right. Um, I'm going to have to kind of ponder how important these points are to me. Over <laughs> right, that's the next up to couple you. Of weeks, okay? And then we'll see how petty I can be. Hopefully you'll be open to bribery. Um, that has not technically been disqualified on the show. Uh, I get to the reader t-shirt and you guys win. <laughs> yeah. All right. Now, Hertz. Mm, flex, yeah. You and I have to agree on a theory for this week. And I- Oh, no. I saw your eyes light up <laughs> in the last segment when I mentioned oh, that no. neither of these people may be John Farnley. Look. Should I be concerned? I mean, maybe a little bit. Oh, no. I- Look, I have a theory, Flex. Brad, <laughs> I, I need to let you know that my my theory for this week, my thought, is that perhaps- you know, we've got this fingerprint test that will unequivocally lead to the truth. Whatever that is. Whatever that might mean. Whatever the truth even means. Whatever. Maybe neither of these characters is, in fact, the real John Farley. And by the end of the novel, we're going to have a completely different character take over the Farley estate. Because it is mentioned in the early parts of the novel, i.e. these first six chapters, that John Farley had some kind of an affair with a barmaid. At the young age of 15. It's true. And several characters are staying at a bar in this story. It's true. There are several characters staying at a bar. And there's a private detective looking around for anyone who might be related to the Farley who estate. probably is Dr. Gideon Fell, but I don't think we've had it explicitly confirmed yet. I mean, he's in <laughs> one of the illustrations. I assume that's Fell. That is my theory. That is my theory, Brad. How do, you, how do you take that? How do you feel? How do I feel about that theory? Yeah, how do you feel? At this point, <laughs> we've just had the murder and nothing else. I'm going to let you go slide with whatever you wanted. You don't have any no pushback. Wow, he's playing oh, it see. suave okay. so that he doesn't try to lead us game. one way or the other. I mean, here's the thing: we can talk about that, <laughs> and that might that might resolve a certain aspect of this. Ooh, John Dixon Carr was known for his impossible crimes, and mm-hmm. we haven't even begun to describe this crime. It's very it's different true. from your typical locked room. We've barely even seen the room. We've only seen it through a window. So right. let's, let's be clear: the murder isn't the thing that happens in the locked room here. Mm. The murder happens out in the open, in the garden, with probably several explicit witnesses. On the garden path. Yeah. Right, and you'll find out more about that aspect of it next time. But yes, we're talking about an outdoor murder in a garden. Brian Page is sitting nearby. Nat Burroughs comes running up. People start running up, and mm. they're they're right there on the scene. And- all they've done is heard some gurgling. They have not seen anybody sl- sliding in and out. They haven't seen any kind of mysterious shadowy figure that came in from the bar down the road. <laughs> true, true. So how did John Farnley die? And does that help us understand who his killer is? I'm just throwing that out to you. Do you have any clues or, or, or I mean, to how he was just, killed? Okay. In terms of the killing here, we know he's got three slashes along the throat and he was thrown or f- stumbled into the pool from, you know, dying of blood it, loss. It harkens very much uh, back to a dire isle by Avi Rahman and the the dog claw slash along the victim's back. I can tell you in terms of the physical location, it is dwelt upon for like, like a whole paragraph. There are these hedges that apparently would make an excellent game of hide and seek. I would suspect- that our killer has ducked behind the hedges in order to avoid being spotted, uh, perhaps to run upon the scene of the crime at a, at a later time. And it's interesting because we we kind of know from the description of the claimant that he 
doesn't seem to be very capable with his legs. He's like described as quite clumsy in the way that he walks. So it's probably not the claimant if they are running around the hedges, as you suggest. Or crawling, perhaps. Crawling behind the hedges. Surely that'd leave a bit of an obvious scrape along the ground if you're crawling maybe. on the paths of a British garden estate. Maybe he's uh, maybe he's uh, tiptoeing. He's got little tiptoes at like, the top of his feet, like his, his toes and his fingers. And he's like almost like an animal. Yeah. I think you should try that at one of your local mazes. <laughs> yeah leave no trace and see if it leaves any traces right also just before before we before we get any further along i did want to say i love the idea that the the story does the classic was it a murder or was it a suicide thing but if one john killed the other then the answer is yes <laughs> <laughs> that's terrible that's terrible <laughs> that's, that's, that's pretty terrible now i'm not as, coming back <laughs> <laughs> the end this has been Death of the Reader. Thank you for listening. <laughs> Be- because of the good deal that was offered to the defendant, John Farnley, if he is the fake, then it, uh, it, it only makes sense as a tale of vengeance for this murder to happen. Mm. Uh, but the other thing is, is that he spent the last couple of decades in the circus and he says, ah, yes, and I learned many good tricks, one of which I can't tell you because it's just so good of a trick. And that is clearly how he got away with the murder, right? Right? That has to be it. But what is the trick? And and why not announce it in chapter three of a 21 chapter murder mystery? I gotcha. Here's the other one, is that the only mention of a weapon, the entire story, is the claimant John Farnley saying, I really wanted to go at his throat with my pocket knife. We haven't seen the murder weapon yet, but I'm just saying, if it's his pocket knife, I'm not surprised. Can I ask you two questions? Please. There's always room for questions. Directly with flex to answer. Let's say it makes total sense that whoever got hit by the other one would feel angry and vengeful and that revenge might be part of this. I get you. I got that. If the claimant is the real John Farnley and was hit by the other guy, then why wouldn't there be enough revenge in taking everything away from him? It, it needs to be murder. Is that what it is? Can I jump in? Because because Mr. Mr. Claimant has put forward the proposition that the defendant could get away with, you know, giving up the John Farley name and receiving a large cash sum. The, the claimant felt it was only proper to offer the money, but if he doesn't take it immediately, like that, that shows a, um, a lack of good faith on the part of the defendant because the chivalric thing to do would be to say, ah, you've come to claim your throne, good king. Very well then, here it is. And he puts his handkerchief on the throne to let the, the claimant sit down on it. And so, of course, uh, our, our gentleman, the claimant, has decided to expedite the process now that he's learned what kind of a man the uh, defendant really is. I Express shipping on your vengeance. That's that's what I would put forward, you know. <laughs> Not that I necessarily agree with you, Flex, but... I can see what you're saying. I mean, why would his wife want to kill him or his elderly butler or his lawyer or his friend Brian Page, the nice young man that's in every John Dixon Carnival? And why would... Mm-hmm. 
the heavy set lawyer want to do it of the of opposition. There doesn't seem to be a reason. And you do have this definite strong feeling between the two claimants. Got it. And there's also another character, a major character who hasn't even come in yet. They'll be coming in next time. The the other thing I did, uh, you did make me think about here, Herds, uh, was something I thought about while mm-hmm. uh, I was looking at the the scene of the crime upon a, upon a bit of a reread of the first six chapters here. Uh-oh. And that's that because this place is an open air mystery, that the the easiest way for John Dixon Carr as an author to lock an open room is to have someone provide a false alibi for someone else that cannot be disproved. I just want to ask you two questions because and and they, these are sort of a preview of coming attractions. Uh-oh. Okay, good. Good. Um, the first one is which one of them is the real John Farnley? It matters. Mm-hmm. And the second thing is what exactly is a crooked hinge. Uh-oh. That's terrifying. Uh-oh. I don't think we get that question today. I thought you were going to ask about any of the other characters who have been mentioned who uh, apparently don't matter, but maybe they do. The, the crooked uh, hinge has fine. to be the way that the uh, the fingerprints are stolen. It's just going to be my guess out the gate because that's the only actual I mean, obviously, door that like, we've really dealt with thus far. What Hertz just said, one of the things I love about this book is that the characters do start to matter more and more. We've just yes. met them. We've just focused on the two men facing off against each other, but we are going to find out so many things about Mr. Welkin and Mr. Murray and Mr. Burroughs and Lady Molly and Madeline Dane. Who oh, you- there she is. Okay. <laughs> I have more notes about her than any other character. I need to let you know. Because <laughs> I'm sure that, like, sorry, did, I, I know that Flex is having a good time dismantling this murder mystery, but, like, I am so curious about all these lady characters. Um, there's the barmaid. There's Miss Victoria Daly, who was killed by a tramp last summer. We haven't even talked about that. Another murder. And there's also Madeline Dane. Mm. I strongly suspect that among the four of these ma- or these lady characters, there are some dual identities going on here. I think that because we've got that theme, because we've got the two, the two men, where one of them is the real one. You think you think Madeline and Victoria are the same character and that they were killed because they could have identified this. the real Farnley? I look, I honestly wonder if Molly is is one of these other characters, if Whoa. she's Madeline Dane somehow. Whoa. Because because everyone seems too familiar with Molly for that to be true. Okay, look, fine, fine. Okay. You take your evidence and you you, you look at the actual <laughs> You murder. take your functional theory and go <laughs> elsewhere. We only come Shut up you. with nonsense look, in this house. <laughs> it's true. Look, I just, I'm so curious to see how those lady characters, because none of them have appeared, all these, these other ladies, they just are not in the story yet. And I feel like there has to be, there has to be some dual identity stuff here. In, in my mind, when, when they, they say, you know, the magician doesn't want you looking at these other parts of the story. These are the parts of the story that I think they're trying to divert us from. They're like, look at the mystery. Look at the murder. Don't look at those women. They're not important. Oh, there like, is stuff coming up, you guys, that is going to make you look in a lot of different Yeah, places. yeah. I'm, I'm so excited. You. I'm, I'm frightened and excited at the same time. Herds, I think officially, just, just because I think I'm going to be right in the long run, I'm going to go with your neither of them is fondly theory. <laughs> I feel like it's a bit cheating, but <laughs> sure. <laughs> Uh, the the other question is, I guess, uh, whether whether Murray has ulterior motives in this situation because I'm sure we're gonna learn more about him. Um, maybe maybe he has the real Farnley in his back pocket somewhere. That is a really good question, but again, I want to remind you that the uh, footnote in chapter two, I think, says 
the honesty and good faith of Kenneth Murray may be accepted as a fact. I'll go on. The evidence he possessed with regard to establishing the identity of the real heir was genuine evidence. All right. Now, let's show you a few things. The honesty and good faith of Kenneth Murray means only that he believes that he is acting, doing the right thing. Yep. And it is possessed past tense. But isn't this note being written down the line because this this novel was like this story was already published <laughs> tell me tell me herds if you were author john dixon Carr trying to play tricks on your audience that isn't exactly the kind of trick you'd try to use the bamboo that i would say he may have on. walked onto the scene of this this dispute with the correct evidence i don't think he has it anymore i'm sorry this is where i step in and tell you this is an authorial footnote <laughs> Written by John Dixon Carr for the first edition. First edition, Hertz. <laughs> I'm done with this. I'm done with this. Past tense. No. It's garbage. <laughs> it's garbage. Murray is a golden saint, and I will not have his his good faith and honesty challenged by you in this court of law. That's, that's not what I'm challenging. I'm saying that someone is taking advantage of his good faith and honesty. No, I, I believe that. I believe that for sure. That is definitely true. <laughs> we'll have to see how Murray gets bamboozled uh, in the coming chapters, I suppose. That we will. That we will. Brad, thank you so much for joining us here for The Crooked Hinge. John Dixon, Carl, what chapters are we covering next week on the show? Next time you are going to read part two, The Life of an Automaton. That's chapters seven and to 13. Automaton? We don't, part, have time. Yeah? we don't have time Look, to, just know, to raise my names, concerns about that next title, sh- but sh- my level of fear has immediately risen. I love <laughs> it. Yeah. The names of these parts are fantastic. Because this is an automaton like no other, believe me. I, oh, God. Listen, I don't want to get into this too deep, but I'm vividly remembering that the first thing that is described of Mr. Page is that he is not particularly animated as a character. Uh-oh. Is he a robot? He's a robot. Is, he, is, is Page a robot? <laughs> This is the first science fiction mystery. Oh, <laughs> no. Take that, Isaac Asimov. Take that. <laughs> this is Death of the Reader, your murder mystery world tour here on 2SER 107.3. We'll be back with chapter 7 to 13 of The Crooked Hinge by John Dixon Carr next week. Stick around. <laughs> <laughs>